Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is uh, so incredibly relevant to us in our lives. And I pray that as we look into it today, we would find hope, that we would find assurance, that we would find equipping, that uh, we can go from here better prepared to serve you this week than we were when we came in. So we give it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you need a Bible, just uh, stick up your hand or catch, uh, catch the eye of one of our ushers and, and uh, they'll hand one to you. So, is it just me? Or is the world getting more and more messed up? What do you think? I don't know, is this just the, the rantings of an old guy uh, who kind of misses the way things were when he was a kid? I don't know. Uh, I, I have never seen politics more divisive, although I do remember back in American history, a couple politicians dueled one another. Uh, I have uh, not ever seen sexuality more confused. I have not seen the, uh, uh, the random violence that we're seeing today. Um, morality seems to have no solid foundation. Uh, the economy seems pretty shaky. I don't know. It's just kind of headed in the wrong direction. Has that been your experience as well? I'm seeing some heads nod. And you're probably thinking right now, well, my, my, Ken, you are really cheery this morning. <laughs> Tell me about your week. Well, I'll tell you, you know, it, my week was, was wrestling with a text from John chapter 11, seeing some people do some pretty dastardly things. And uh, it seems by the end of John chapter 11, like the bad guys are winning. And uh, it just got me thinking about what we see around ourselves. And... As I was thinking that through, the words of an old hymn came to mind. And it's, it's a hymn that many of you probably have never heard. It's, it's called Once to Every Man and Nation by uh, James Russell Lowell. Anybody, have you recognized that title? Uh, maybe a couple. It's, it's the third verse that, that came to my mind. It says this, Though the cause of evil prosper... In other words, though the bad guys are, are winning, it's, it's, it's successful, yet his truth alone is strong. Truth still remains strong. Though her portion be the scaffold, whose portion? The truth. So truth's portion, if you're holding to the truth, you may end up facing the gallows. And upon the throne, who's in power, be wrong. Yet that scaffold sways the future. And behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. When it seems like the bad guys are winning, we know that God is still in control. And that applies to us, and, and I saw that uh, in the text here in John chapter 11. It is comforting for me to realize when it seems like the bad guys are winning that God is still on the throne. He is still in control. He is sovereign. He is working all things for his glory. 
So I'd like for us just to walk through this text that had troubled me so much throughout the week, uh, starting at verse 45 of John chapter 11. If you have one of the Bibles that, that we provide here, you'll find it on page 749. Let's just do a walkthrough of the text because it's, it's pretty rich. All right, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So Mary is the sister of Martha from Luke chapter 10, the Mary-Martha thing where Jesus is teaching. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha is busy fussing around making meals and, and complaining that Mary is doing nothing to help her. And she said, Lord, make her do something. Okay, so that's the Mary and Martha. What John lets us know clearly is that they are sisters of Lazarus, the man that Jesus raised from the dead. These people who, it says, uh, came to visit Mary likely came uh, when Lazarus died in order to mourn with Mary and Martha. And it's in that context that they are on hand and see Jesus raise him from the dead. And the text tells us that many believed in him at that point. Not hard to imagine when you've just seen someone raised to life, someone who's been dead for four days. I'd be inclined to, to believe as well. But it tells us that others went and tattled to the Pharisees. Now, you may uh, be charitable toward the Pharisees and suggest that they wanted to tell these guys so they could become Christ followers, but it looks more like tattling, and the subsequent verses kind of show that to be the case. Verse 47, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, the, the Sanhedrin was a council, a, a body of 70 people made up of chief priests who were mostly Sadducees. Uh, there was a minority contingent of Pharisees, and there was a group of, of wealthy landowners as well. That made up the Sanhedrin. It was the highest judicial body in the land. So think Supreme Court, okay? These 70 are, are the highest judicial body. Uh, but more than that, it was also a legislative body. They, they ruled on things, kind of like our Congress does. And since the Sadducees uh, elected from among them a chief priest to govern the whole thing, he would have executive functions as well. And so picture the three branches of our government, executive, legislative, and judicial, rolled into one. This is one powerful group of people. And so they convene an emergency meeting because of what Jesus had just done. But their existence, as powerful as they were, depended still on the goodwill of Rome. The Romans uh, let them have a certain degree of autonomy, let them run those things themselves, but the Romans could always yank back on that leash and just kind of jerk their chain and take it all away. So they were the highest body in the land, but always wary of the power of Rome that could come crashing down on them at any time. So back to verse 47. What are we accomplishing, they asked. That's the Sanhedrin asking. What are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. 
So in verse 45, as a result of seeing Lazarus raised from the dead, it tells us many believed in Jesus at that point. Now here in, in verse 48, uh, the Sanhedrin is aware that momentum is building. Jesus is growing in popularity. And they say, hey, if we don't do something, everyone's going to be believing in him before long. So they ask this question, what are we accomplishing? And that's a good question. And I think it's a deeper question than they even knew they were raising. And I want to come back to that uh, later on in the message. You, you might have noticed that I titled this message, What is God Accomplishing? Because I think that's the real question behind the question. They're asking, what are we accomplishing? And the real question is, what is God accomplishing? But more of that in a moment. Verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. Now, a little aside, there was a man named Josephus who was a historian, Jewish man, and uh, Josephus wrote some pretty good first century history. Josephus had been a member of the Sanhedrin at one point, and he notes in his history that the Sanhedrin is really rude. And uh, it kind of shows up here. Here's their chief priest, um, their, their uh, council leader, who is being extremely rude to the people of his own body. Okay, back to it. Here's what Caiaphas says. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And John expands on that and says, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So here we have Caiaphas, the high priest and leader of the Jewish government, stating what he believed to be politically expedient. Better that that man die than all of us die. So let's put him to death. But we find that he's speaking far more truth than he ever could have realized at that moment. Jesus would, in fact, die in someone else's place, but it wouldn't be just for the Jews living in Israel at that time. Uh, it would be for people everywhere who would come to embrace him as Savior all the way down to people living in Eau Claire, Wisconsin in 2023. Jesus would, in fact, die for all of those people. So with Caiaphas then saying that Jesus needed to die, the Sanhedrin begins to make specific plans to kill him. That leads us to verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. So Jesus stops moving about in public in Judea, uh, the region around Jerusalem. So you can see on the map, Jerusalem is underlined in red, just to kind of give you a base there. That's where he had been lately. 
But after this plot of the Sadducees, he moves to this town about a dozen miles or so to the northeast called Ephraim, or if you're from Door County, Ephraim, right? <laughs> so they retreat there, and, um, and if the events that, that begin this passage uh, take place around the time of the Feast of Dedication, John chapter 10, verse 22 tells us, then that would put um, their move uh, into uh, uh, mid-December. So uh, around the time of this Feast of Dedication, which is present-day Hanukkah, happens around the same time as our Christmas, maybe a little earlier. So they, they basically retreat in December and don't come out of this place until around the time of the Passover, which is around the time of our Easter, March or April. So here's the question. Why did he go into relative isolation? It's because his time had not yet come. Jesus was to become the Passover lamb who would take away the sin of the world. And so he came out of that isolation around the time of the Passover. So there's the passage. Uh, Jesus, at the end of this, this plot of the Sanhedrin, is in retreat. It looks like the bad guys are winning. The Sanhedrin is plotting a huge injustice. And so we come back to that question in verse 47. It's a great question. What are we accomplishing? It's worth asking ourselves from time to time because Beneath and through whatever these people were trying to accomplish, God was accomplishing something far beyond what they intended. And the same is true for us. Last week, we saw that the raising of Lazarus demonstrated to us that though we may be in a hard time and finding God seeming very distant to us, he is still aware, he is still in control, and he is ready to work an even greater miracle. I think that's the gist of, of last week's passage. I think Adam hit it out of the park. It was great. And so when Jesus got word that Lazarus was sick, what did he do? He stayed where he was two more days before he started coming back. And so by the time he got back to them, Lazarus had been dead for four days. Can you imagine Mary and Martha learning that Jesus, when they found out that their brother was really, really sick, delayed two more days before coming back? Can you imagine what that was like for Mary and Martha to find that out? Each one of them in the passage came up to Jesus separately and said, uh, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. So where were you? Why didn't you come? Don't you care? But instead of just healing Lazarus, Jesus raised him from the dead. A much greater thing. Now that was last week. Mary and Martha feeling like God is distant, uncaring. This week, though, shows that God is in control even when the bad guys seem to be winning. Even when the world seems spiraling out of control. The Pharisees saw Jesus' growing popularity. 
They saw increasing numbers of people putting their trust in him, and they did their very best to stop it. And even their high priest spoke better than he knew. Jesus needs to die for us. And they thought they were stopping him, but they were just working out God's plan. God is in control. So the question isn't just what are we accomplishing, but what is God accomplishing? Now, the fact that God is in control doesn't diminish our responsibility for how we live our lives. Uh, we don't just stop working because God is ultimately in control. The scripture affirms both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people. Those two things are compatible. And God uses our efforts to accomplish his purposes. And he even uses the efforts of those who oppose him. Let me give you a couple examples from the book of Acts. First one, Acts chapter 2, Peter's speech at Pentecost, uh, Acts 2, verses 22 and 23. Here's Peter saying, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God planned it, and they did it. Go back to two, please. This was God's plan. It was what they wanted to do. And they're responsible because they did it. God is sovereign, and we are responsible moral agents. Now, chapter 4, this is the prayer of the believers after Peter and John are released from jail. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the, the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You see those two elements there? God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel conspired against Jesus. They did it. God decided beforehand that it would happen. God is sovereign, and we are responsible moral agents. Now, how do we fit divine sovereignty and human responsibility together? How, how do we marry those up? Let me just share a perspective with you that's been helpful to me. Like any illustration, it'll break down if you push it far enough, but uh, maybe this can help us understand while we look in a glass darkly and wait for the day when we see face to face. Here goes. Sometime after the Wizard of Oz thing, Remember the Wizard of Oz thing? If you weren't here that Sunday, just ask somebody that was. My phone rang one evening. It was a friend calling from the community theater warehouse. They were putting on a production of Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians, and they were short one actor. And knowing my brilliant performance as the Tin Man, 
They offered me the role over the phone. Just saying. So here's, here's the storyline for 10 Little Indians. 10 people have been invited to a mansion that, that's perched high on a mountaintop. It's accessible only by cable car. They're all strangers to one another. Nobody knows anybody else. And when they're all gathered, they get to hear a recording from their host that tells them they've each been invited because each one of them has some way caused the death of an innocent person and each one of them was going to pay. There it is. So one by one, they start getting knocked off according to this poem, Ten Little Indians. And as more and more of them get picked off, the survivors begin to believe that the killer is one of them, though nobody knows who it is. So that's, that's the storyline. It's a great story. It's a great murder mystery. So I got to play the doctor. And my role, I know that I messed up medically and through my own medical malpractice caused the death of one of my patients. I know also that I'm not the person who's killing off the rest of the guests, but the rest of the guests don't know that. So in my part, I uh, play this doctor and I try to play my role as convincingly as I can. There's even this scene where I become overwhelmed by my guilt and I have this meltdown on the stage and I'm doing this meltdown scene and, and real tears are coming from my eyes. It's pretty amazing. But each moment on stage as, as I'm living this thing out, playing my role, I'm thinking each moment might be my last. Each moment might be the moment when I drink the poison or when the sandbag falls on my head, right? And yet the outcome was already given, right? It's already written. Agatha Christie wrote it. It ends the way she wanted it to end. So here's the question. If the outcome is already written, why bother acting out the play? Do it because it's a brilliant story. <laughs> it's a great story. People love to watch it. And in a way, you do it to showcase the brilliance of the person who wrote it. For the actors on the stage, as well as for the audience that was out there, each moment of the play is packed with suspense and drama. Although for the playwright, it's a done deal. How many movies or plays have you seen more than once? A few? I was just recounting to somebody this week that I've seen Les Miserables at least eight or ten times. I am planning to see it again. Why? I know how it comes out. Why bother seeing it again? It's a great story. It's a story of the triumph of grace over law. It's an amazing story. I can't wait to see it again. I love each scene, even though the end is certain. So here's where drama helps me understand the interplay between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. God has written a brilliant plan. It's brilliant. It's got more moving parts than we can imagine. And the outcome is written. He gets all the glory in the end. But in the meantime, we get to live out our parts. 
meaningfully interacting with each other, making real conscious decisions, some of them good, some of them very good, some of them bad, some of them terrible. And all of it playing into God's amazing plan. Is he sovereign? Yes. It's going to turn out according to what he has planned. Are we responsible? Yes. We each end up doing the thing we wanted to do. So we look back at the 11th chapter of John's gospel and we see Sanhedrin doing exactly what they wanted to do. They conspired against Jesus. They plotted to take his life, verse 53 tells us. Verse 57 tells us they gave the order that if anyone found out where Jesus was, they should report it so the authorities could arrest him. These are dirty, rotten scoundrels with an evil plan. Yet they fulfilled both the will and the plan of God as they did what they did. Did they do what they wanted to do? They did. Was God sovereign over the whole thing? He was. God used wicked people to bring about the death of his son, to provide salvation to all who would call on him. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, is a verse that is probably pretty familiar to most of us. It's a verse that we find some comfort in when, when we struggle with hard times. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. We find comfort in that. It reminds us that, that God's in control, even in difficult times. He's still at work, working out purposes that go beyond what we might be able to see. But did you ever see God's sovereignty and our responsibility and how we are described in that verse? We have been described as those who love him. That's our responsibility, our heart's response to him. We love him. And we also see us being described as those who've been called according to his purpose. He calls us and we love him. His sovereignty, our responsibility. And in the context of all that, he's at work in all things for our ultimate good. Now, you may be feeling today like Mary and Martha from last week, like you're in need and God is distant and unresponsive. And as Adam said last week, he's got something greater in mind. Trust him. You may be feeling today like the latter half of John 11, like the bad guys are winning and the world is spinning out of control. But the good news is God is still in control. He's working even through the scheming of his enemies to bring all things to an exciting conclusion that glorifies him and vindicates his people. So stay tuned. Pray with me, will you? Father, it's, it's a pretty amazing passage after all. It looks like some people are planning some things that make us recoil in horror and say, no, don't do that. And yet we find in it the outworking of your perfect plan of salvation that made a way even for us 
And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to trust you when things don't make sense. Help us to use the time that you give us to contribute to your kingdom's advance so that more and more will come to you and know you and have their trust in you and find a home in heaven when that final chapter comes. And so we give ourselves to you toward that end and ask that you would use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.